Well, Merry Christmas again, everyone. Like I said, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor at Cross of Life, and the message that we're going to focus on tonight is the text from Luke chapter 1, where we hear what is called the Annunciation of the birth of Jesus, the announcing of that birth to Mary, his mother. Uh, We're going to read that text in just a few moments, but I want to let you in on why we chose this text for this evening. We already read that Jesus was born. We read that from Luke 2. But what I want you to walk away with tonight is two really important things. First of all, what is the significance of the fact that Jesus came? And then secondly, how ought you to receive the message that Jesus came? So we'll look at the text. It's from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. I'll read it for us, and then we'll study it together. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me, uh, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And this is the gospel of the Lord. So, like I said, I want to give you those two points, the significance of Christmas and how you receive this message. But first, I want to walk back through the text that we just read and make sure that we all understand what's going on here. Because at our church, we value making sure we get whatever we learn right from the text of Scripture. So, let's study it together. Uh, You heard at the beginning of the text that this is the account of an angel coming to Mary. Mary would have been probably about 14 or 15 years old. We don't know that for sure, but we're guessing based on the marriageable age of young Jewish girls at that time. Uh, 14 was about the age where you could start looking for a husband or being looked for as a wife. And Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So we assume about that age for her. She was from a town called Nazareth. Nazareth today is about 50,000 people, but back at that time, it was about 400 or 500. It was a small town, podunk nowhere, backwoods where basically everybody knew everybody's business. She knew that whatever was going to happen to her would become news across town quickly. So an angel shows up to her, a pretty amazing event, right? And the angel says to her, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. That phrase, highly favored, is interesting because when we think of favor, we might think of preference, right? I prefer this over this. And in some sense, that's true, but we miss maybe the the greater meaning behind this word, which is a pleasant surprise. Like if we were to put this into colloquial language, it's like the angel came to Mary and said, I've got a surprise for you. It's good news. But it's good news not on the basis of who you are. Some people have a trouble with this. They think that Mary was a little bit more pious or a little bit more holy than most people. The Bible's pretty clear she was not. In fact, she says in a place later that she needs a savior from her own sins. 
Mary was not any better than you or me. The favor that God showed her was completely unconditional. He simply chose her because he chose her. And that's the best kind of love, isn't it? I mean, for those of you who are married, if your spouse said, I love you because of these five reasons, that might feel good for a moment until maybe one one or two or three or five of those reasons stop being true about you, and then you might wonder, do they still love me? The best answer, by the way, marriage tip, husbands, if your wife asks you, why do you love me? You say, because I love you. You don't give her a list because it's the best kind of love. It's the love that's unconditional. It's the love that never backs down. This is the kind of favor that God shows to Mary. He says, the Lord is with you. Mary, of course, is greatly troubled at this. The word troubled means something like confused in the original Greek that this was written in. She's confused, though, not because there's an angel. In her culture, it would be actually a relatively believable thing to have an angel come to her. What she's confused about is why an angel is coming to her. And so the text tells us that she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She doesn't wonder, why is there an angel here? She says, angels sometimes come and talk to people. What kind of greeting is this? This word wondered is interesting, too. In the Greek, it's literally the word think and through. To think through something, right? To to consider what is going on and to try to make logical sense of it. As she's doing this, the angel speaks to her again and says, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, he's already said that. He started by saying, You have found favor with God, and he repeats it again. But isn't it the truth that you need to hear it more than once? I mean, some of you, Cross of Life is your church home. You're here every Sunday. You're hearing the good news that God forgives you and loves you and accepts you and acknowledges you unconditionally, and you know the beauty of hearing that every Sunday. Some of you, you're not in church every Sunday. And while you're not saved, you're not more loved by God by being in church every Sunday, you're missing out. You're missing out on hearing that message again and again. Even social psychology understands this. The more you hear something, the more real it becomes to you. It goes from being intellectually true to being true true in your heart. And so the angel repeats that message to Mary. He then explains to her what's going to happen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Jesus was not an uncommon name in that culture. It would be anything like we would think of a common name. It's a word that means the Lord saves which was going to be Jesus' purpose, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the applications. He continues, This Jesus, this son of yours, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Uh, The Most High, of course, is the one above all other ones. It's God. Later in the text, he will say it explicitly. This one will be called the Son of God. This baby who is going to be born from you, Mary, he is going to be divine. As the book of Colossians says, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of the deity in bodily form. Everything that God is reduced to a few cells in your uterus, Mary, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. He's not only God, but he is going to be a human being. Why? Because he was coming to do something very specific. God was coming to die. I mean, those of you who know the rest of Jesus' story, you know that he lived for a while until he was crucified, and that was on purpose, because he came to die. And since he was human, he could die. Not just for one person's life, because one human life is worth one human life, but because he was God's life in human form, infinitely valuable for all people. Because he's both God and human, he can be your savior. 
Well, Mary, she's a smarty pants. She asks a question. How will this be since I'm a virgin? She knows how babies are made and she knows that she should not have a baby in her currently. How is this going to be, angel? Well, the angel answers her. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Two powerful verbs in this sentence. The first one, come, is a word that in a different context could be translated like attack, like a powerful force against a person. Of course, it doesn't mean attack in this context, but that's the feeling that you get with this word, and yet also overshadow. Think of the clouds, constantly present, always there. No matter where you are, you can look up and you can see them. God, like that. The Holy Spirit will come and he will do a powerful thing and he will be with you throughout it. Now the angel gives her another piece of proof. She says, not o- he says, not only is this power going to come from God, but you should look, this is already working in somebody else's life. Look at Elizabeth. Your relative who is said to not be able to have any children because she's way too old for that, has a baby and has had that baby for six months. Why? Because no word from God will ever fail. What a powerful phrase. No word that God says can ever fail. We wish that was true of us. It's the reason we yell at people who cut us off in traffic or we scold our kids. We want our words to never fail, our words to change the reality around us. And yet you and I both know that's not how it works. As corrupted people from the image of God, our words don't do what God's words do, but God's words do that. God speaks and it is true. God speaks and whether you like it or not, it is reality. No word from God can ever fail. And so Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So let's, that's what's going on. Let's make a couple applications. If you're taking notes with us, you grabbed a notes sheet, you'll see those are the two points on your notes sheet. The significance of Jesus coming and how do we receive this message? First, the significance of Jesus coming. The first thing we should learn about the Christmas message from this story is Jesus is far greater than we thought. Jesus is far greater than we thought. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was channel surfing, which as I think about telling you that, I I think to myself, who channel surfs anymore? Like with PVR and Netflix and and on-demand, like who's actually channel surfing? Well, I was. Maybe that says something to you about the quality of my life, but I was. I was channel surfing and I came across Iron Man 2. You know this movie? If you're Marvel Universe, Iron Man 2. Um, if you're not familiar, the Iron Man series is Tony Stark is the main character and he's kind of this playboy billionaire type and he has this suit that makes him Iron Man, makes him essentially invincible. And he goes out and does vigilante work like is kind of common in the Marvel Universe. But now we're at Iron Man And in Iron Man 2, there are some who are trying now to attack Tony Stark, to take his power away from them, and one of those characters is named Ivan Vanko. He's kind of the antagonist of the story. Ivan Vanko makes this suit that is similar to the Iron Man suit and uses it to attack Tony Stark, and while he doesn't actually defeat Tony Stark, he does wound him. He makes it obvious to the world that Tony Stark is not invincible. Later in the movie, and this is the part where I channel surfed in, uh, Tony Stark confronts Ivan Vanko, and Ivan Vanko says this really interesting thing. He says, if you make God bleed, people will cease to believe in him. Do you understand what he's saying? In the context of the movie, what he's saying is, Tony, you thought you were invincible, and people followed you because you were invincible, but I just showed the world that you're not, and people will not believe in you anymore. Now, this is more true than we want to believe in our life today. 
So many people want a God who is invincible. They want a God who can solve all of their problems, who can snap his fingers and things will be different. But if again, you know the story of Jesus, that is not how Jesus came. Jesus came as God to bleed, to give his life on a cross to save your life. Now, why would he do that? Maybe it's because Jesus is a God who is far greater than any other God. A God who is completely different from every other God because he's not a God of our imagination. Human beings, we've made up gods for ourselves and they all act the same. They all bellow from on high. Here's what you need to do. You need to be this way. Do this thing. Say these words. Light these candles. And then you'll be good. Come up to me, all the gods of the world say. Except the true God, who says, I come down to you. I make myself vulnerable for you. I could be invincible, but I choose to give that up. I am immortal, but I choose to become mortal. I am unstoppable, but I choose to be killable to show you how great I actually am. You know this is true. You know that a higher form of being shows its greatness by lowering itself to a lower form of being. For example, Adolf Hitler was powerful, but he was not great. He was powerful. He had the ability to do all sorts of things, but he was not great because he chose to use his power to oppress those who were weaker than him. Abraham Lincoln was powerful and he was great because he chose to use his power to help those who were unfortunate, who did not have the same opportunities. Or maybe to make it more personal, if you have a a pet, you might really love that pet. You might even have one of those stickers on the back of your car that says something like, my kids have four legs, and if that's true, I offer pastoral counseling. You might really love your pet, but you are a higher form of life than your pet. You could abuse your pet, and that would be power. But that would not be great. That would not be the care, the love, the concern that that animal needs. And how do you express that love and that care and that concern? In some way, you become a little bit like your pet, don't you? The way you look at them, the way you touch them, the way you speak to them, it's not the same way you treat another human being. You treat them differently because you lower yourself to them, to love them. Some of you have kids, same thing. You're not a lower or higher form of being, but you are more developed than your kids. And you don't yell at your kids, why can't you know these things that, well, kids maybe never learn or only learn when they're adults. You work with them at their level. You come down to their level in order to help them grow up. You show your greatness by being willing to lower yourself. And Jesus does the same thing. God shows how great he actually is By not bellowing from on high, you need to be like this. Be more like me, but I will be like you. I will give up my life for you. So Jesus is far greater than we previously thought. We also know that we are far worse than we thought. We are far worse than we thought. I mentioned when we read the text that Jesus' name means the Lord saves, Uh, but you maybe noticed that that wasn't in the text that we read. It actually comes from a different text of the Bible, Matthew chapter 1, where that same angel, Gabriel, shows up to Mary's fiancé, Joseph. And he actually explains to Joseph what Jesus' name means. He says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. That's Jesus' purpose. That's why he comes. Some people like to believe Jesus is here to be a moral guru, a fine teacher, a good example of good, of good living. No. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Let's say you go back home and you're going to open presents tonight or maybe tomorrow. And you get there around the tree and you pick up the first present and you open it up and it's a book about how to lose weight. You scan the room, you set it down, you think the next one might be better. So you pick up the next gift and you open it up and it's a book about anger management. You're like, okay, set it aside. Open the third gift and it's a year's supply of Rogaine. How do you accept those gifts? By admitting you need help. Right, if you accept those gifts, what you're saying is, I'm temperamental, and I'm fat, and I'm bald. You have to admit that about yourself if you're going to say, thank you so much for these thoughtful gifts. Something similar is happening here. Jesus comes to save his people from their sins, and if we are going to receive Jesus, then we have to admit that we need him. And there's two parts of this that I think we have trouble admitting, the sins part and the saving part. Some of us don't want to believe that we have sins. We want to believe that we have some minor imperfections, some things we could work on, some ways that we sometimes fail. Or maybe we want to redefine what the scripture says about how we manage our money or our body or our family or our time or our eyes. We say the Bible doesn't really mean that. It's been changed over hundreds of years. That was back then. This is now. We avoid the whole idea. We don't want to believe that we have sin. We have offense against God. And second, we don't want to believe that we need saving from that sin. And what's saving? It's taking someone out of a dangerous situation that they otherwise could not get themselves out of. We want to believe that Jesus is here to be my personal assistant. Like, I've got some things going and I could use a hand in some places, so Jesus, if you would, please back me up on this one. Jesus will not be your personal assistant. He is here to save you from a death that you could not escape on your own. If you want Jesus to be your buddy, if you want Jesus to be your guide, if you want Jesus to be the one who gives you wisdom, he will do those things, but it will never be enough because it's not what he came to do. And so we are far worse off than we maybe thought. We maybe thought of ourselves as pretty good people, but to say it very bluntly, what Christmas tells us is that nothing less than the death of God is sufficient to pay for our wickedness. Nothing less than the death of God is sufficient to pay for our wickedness. Which leads us to the third point, is that God is loving us far more than we thought. You know, as a pastor, I get to engage with people who are skeptical of Christianity or exploring the idea of Christianity. And one of the most common questions that I get is, why does God let bad things happen? Like, if there's a good God out there and he's all-knowing and all-powerful, why are all these bad things happening? That's a really challenging question. Not because there aren't good answers to that question, but because almost every time someone asks that question, they're not just exploring the intellectual capacities of their mind. They're asking because something happened. They're asking because their kids went off the rails, because they lost a baby, because their mother died young, because the financial floor fell out. 
because they don't know how they're going to make it because they got the diagnosis. And they're asking not because they want to know the answer, but because they're crying out in a visceral cry to God, why? I don't always have good answers in those moments, but one of the answers that I, I like more than most is what uh, 20th century English author Dorothy Sayers said to that question. She wrote this, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. How much does God love you? Enough to go all in. Not to give you a blank check and say, I know you got problems with your sins here, this should take care of it. But to step into it with you. To be part of it with you. To be able to say, when what you're going through, whatever you're going through when you walk back out those doors, I know what that's like. I've been there, and I'm going to make it right. Your God doesn't love you with a superficial, emotional love. He loves you with a love that is willing to give up his own life for you. He's willing to contain himself in a human body for you. He's willing to give up the glories of heaven and the worship of angels for you. So let's summarize. Christmas means this, friends. We are far more lost than we are willing to admit. And we are far more loved than we'd ever dare to hope. And can I pause on that last moment, that last sentence for a moment? Because I think some of you are not willing to dare to hope. Like you're not ready for this kind of unconditional love. I'll tell you, this is anecdotal, but I get the sense as a pastor that sometimes people just aren't ready to receive this kind of unconditional God-to-them love. Because as a pastor, I get to see some amazing shows of kindness. People in our congregation are incredibly generous with their time and their money and their energy. And they will give to people who are in need, even people they have no idea who they are or they never met. And what weirdly happens sometimes when that generosity goes out is the people who receive that generosity shut down because they're not ready to receive that much love. They have been so conditioned, even I would say traumatized, by a world that constantly demands that you be good enough in order to be loved, that as soon as the record scratch hits and they see unconditional love, they can't handle it. So if that's you, if you're listening to this and you're saying, that's too good to be true, I get it. You've been taught by the world that it's too good to be true. But I'll let you know, it is absolutely 100% true, and it is the only thing that will animate your life. So let's ask this question then. How are, to re how are we to receive this message? 
Mary gives us three really cool insights into how to receive the message of Christmas. The first one we see in verse 29 of the text where it says, Mary was greatly troubled at the words of the angel and wondered what kind of greeting this would be. Remember I said that word is to think through something. So the first thing that you should do as you try to receive the Christmas message is you should think it through. You should think it through. There's this criticism of Christians that we are the ones who turn our brains off. Everyone else has rationality and we have blind faith. I would actually like to make the case to you that the inverse is true. That Christians are the ones who are willing to think it through. They are the ones who are willing to look at the facts in front of them and say, what is the most logical explanation for all of these facts? They're not willing to come in with an a priori, an already decided opinion about things. They say, I'm, I'm willing to learn. What does the text say? I think people who are Christians or identify as Christians and those who are maybe struggling or skeptical about the whole thing do this in two different ways. And so I want to address both groups of you tonight. First, I want to address those of you who are not Christians yet or maybe are considering Christianity or maybe even uh, you are maybe a Christian, but you've really been far away for a while. I want to challenge you to think it through. Think through two things tonight. The first thing I want you to think through is the prophets. You've heard me say this a couple times already in this worship service, that God predicted the coming of Jesus way in advance of it, being, of it actually happening. Did you know that the Bible contains prophets from 700 years, 1,000 years, 500 years before Jesus, predicting things like the time that Jesus is going to be born, his hometown, his family, his biological lineage, and 300 other prophecies that all were fulfilled in Jesus? And people can argue about the dates of these things. Some people might say, well, Isaiah was written hundreds of years later. Fine, it's still before Jesus. And Jesus still made it happen. There's only one person who knows the future. And it's God. And he proved it over 300 times in the Bible. Now tell me, what is the most logical explanation? Is it that Jesus woke up one morning and said, hey, you know what? A lot of those things I read in the Old Testament are kind of true about me. I bet I could could pull the wool over everybody's eyes and convince them I was the Messiah. Or maybe he was. Maybe he was the Messiah. Maybe all these things were God saying to us, I'm going to save you. Here is how. And then a man came and did it. The second thing I want you to think through is the historical resurrection. I know it's Christmas, not Easter, and you're thinking to yourself, you're getting off topic, Pastor, but I think this is important. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead in real history is the linchpin of everything that Christianity says. In fact, the Bible itself says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the whole thing is worthless. You are to be pitied more than all people if you believe this stuff. But it did happen. And it's not just some pie-in-the-sky wistful thinking of some Christians who hope that they are going to go to heaven someday when they die. No, it's, it's true history. And in fact, the only reason that people deny the history that's right in front of their faces is because they've already decided, a priori, illogically, that resurrections can't happen. They can't happen. And you could see how someone might get there, right? Well, I never see resurrections happening around me. They're, they're impossible until they happen. There are a whole bunch of things that have happened in the world's history that we thought there's no way that that could happen until it happened. We never thought we'd go to the moon. We never thought we'd break the four-minute mile. List off all your things. We never thought that was even possible until it happened. 
The way that they get to this is by looking at the historical facts, not even from the Bible as God's word, but just what secular and non-Christian authors write about that time when Jesus was on earth. They put together all the facts and what they say is there's really no other reasonable explanation for what happened outside Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago than Jesus rose from the dead. You don't need to believe the Bible is God's word to believe that. Again, the only reason people throw it away is they say, well, resurrections can't happen, which is illogical. If you want to explore this more, there are books that have been read on this. I'd be glad to have a conversation with you about this. But there is real hard evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, which means that he is God and that what he says is God's word. But then let me move over to those of you who would call yourself Christian tonight. I think we struggle with this just as much as our non-Christian friends. Because while we might say, I believe in the resurrection, I believe that the Bible is God's word, do we think it through? Do we say, as one pastor quipped recently, Jesus loves me, this I know, and that is all I want to know. I don't want to think through how God's word applies to the deeper things of my life. I don't want to think through the implications for how I spend my money or my time or organize my family or entertain myself or think about my future. I don't want to think about those things because they're inconvenient. Can I share something with you that C.S. Lewis wrote? He said, many people treat Jesus like a plumber. They have this nice little cottage of a life that they've built for themselves, and they've got a couple things that need to be tweaked, and so they call Jesus the plumber in, expecting him to come and fix things so there aren't any leaks anymore. But as Jesus walks in the door, he starts to blow out a wall and take on an addition to the house. And people ask him, Jesus, why are you doing this? I just wanted you to come and fix the plumbing. And Jesus said, I plan to live here. If you want Jesus to live in your life, he's going to bust down some walls. He's not going to let you keep him as a plumber. He's going to take ownership. And I think for some of us who are Christians, we're not ready for that. We haven't thought through the scriptures like this. So that's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn comes from verse 34. Mary asks a question. She's a very logical girl, so she thinks through what's going on, and then she comes to a place where her logic has an impasse. How is it, angel, that I'm going to have a baby when I am a virgin? Which leads us to the second thing. How to receive this Christmas message? Ask questions. There's going to be places where as you think through what this all means and how true this is, you're going to have questions. You should ask them. And you should ask them to two people. You should first ask your pastor and then ask God. First, ask your pastor. Uh, Many of you who are in the room today, I'm your pastor. And I am tasked, I am divinely called by the Holy Spirit to know God's word well enough to give you an answer to your questions right from God's word. Not my opinion, not psychobabble, God's word. For some of you, I'm not your pastor. And some of you will go home to your home churches and God be praised for that. Go ask your pastor. Let me challenge you. If your pastor doesn't open the Bible to show you what his answer, where his answer comes from in the scripture, he's not a good pastor. No shade on him, but his job is to know what God's word says. And your answer should come from God's word. And for some of you, you don't have a pastor. Let this be my invitation to be your pastor. (laughs) I would love to serve you with God's word. Even if you don't want to call me pastor or you don't want to call this your church home yet, but you want to explore your questions, I'm glad to sit down, pay for your coffee or your lunch, and talk through what you're thinking. But you should also ask God. Like, you should ask God in prayer, God, this is what I'm struggling with. 
And if you're out there and you really love me and you really want to give me answers, show me. I believe he will. But I want to show you how. See, what many people believe is that if they ask God their questions, God is going to like do some miraculous thing. Like he's going to rip the sky apart and be like, you should go to Subway for lunch or something, you know, whatever the thing is. That's not how God works. And the text actually shows this, right? The angel answers Mary's question by saying, look at Elizabeth. Look at your fellow Christian. Look at another person. And you could do the same. As you ask God for answers about your questions, maybe look to another Christian and see how God is already working in their life. And ask yourself, is that just because they're a better person than most? Or because something divine is happening? And then secondly, look for your answers in God's word. Right? That's what the angel says. He says, no word from God will ever fail. Go back to the scripture. If you don't want to ask me, that's fine. But open your Bible and look. But can I linger on this point for one more minute or so? I think a lot of people don't want to ask. And I think they don't want to ask for two reasons. First, they don't want to ask because they want a Christianity pill. You know how a pill works, right? If you have a problem, you take a pill, and the problem goes away for a little while so you can go about your normal life. I think a lot of people want that. They want a Christianity that makes them feel good for a little while so they can kind of keep doing whatever they were doing before. This won't work. Christianity is not a pill. It is a new life. One completely different from what you've been previously doing. It's, as Jesus says, a life that is truly life. It's not a Band-Aid. It's not a quick fix. It's a whole life change. And some people are afraid to ask because they know that's true. And like I alluded to earlier, some are afraid to hope. They're afraid that if they ask the questions, they might actually come to the conclusion that this is actually true. And they're almost afraid to feel that loved. And so maybe this fits some of you. Maybe you don't feel like you fit into either of these categories. But I would encourage you, as you hear this message tonight, think it through and ask questions. Which gives us our final point. The third point is finally to embrace the adventure. Embrace the adventure. I think the end of this text is so interesting. And as I was studying for this sermon, this just dawned on me. Mary's answer at the end of this text is not what I would expect. Like, I think if you were writing this story, and maybe if you were even making it up as if it didn't happen, you would portray Mary as like totally into it, right? Like, mother of the Son of God? All right, here we go. This is going to be great. Yes, I am all in. Let me know where I have to sign. But she doesn't answer that way, right? She, She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And maybe I'm reading into this, and so you can fact check me if you want to. I feel like this is sort of like a a resignation, isn't it? Like, I guess. I mean, you're God. What else can I do? And once you think through her life, it kind of makes sense. Remember the small town? She was about to be a pariah in society as an unwed single mom. She was likely going to lose her betrothed. She was likely going to lose any source of reasonable income for the rest of her life. She was probably going to have to move away. She was going to have to bear the pains of pregnancy and childbirth, likely by herself. Sound exciting? But he was God. And she could do no other. 
I'm the Lord's servant, she says. May your word to me be fulfilled. And I wonder if some of you, as you're listening to this message, are in the same spot. Like maybe you're not a Christian and you're thinking about this and you're saying to yourself, that's more intriguing than than I previously thought. But what if I believed it? What would my family think of me? What would my friends think of me? Would that mean I need to change this, that, or the other thing about my life? Maybe. Or those of you who are Christians, you're thinking this through and you're starting to ask questions and you're realizing this is God's word and he's God and I'm not and I'm the Lord's servant and if that's what he says about how my life looks, may his word to me be fulfilled. And you're worried about that, what's, what that's going to mean for your budget or your schedule or your family and I would just encourage you, Embrace the adventure. (laughs) Like Mary, you might not be excited about this. In fact, this might be a process. Tonight, you might get a little bit down the path and you need to take another little baby step and another little baby step and another little baby step. In fact, in my experience, that's kind of how it happens. For most people who come into Christianity, it isn't like a snap moment where everything suddenly makes sense. It's days on days and weeks and months of wrestling with this, realizing its truth and realizing its beauty. I would encourage you to embrace the adventure. Because can I be honest with you? What else have we got going? I mean, really? You're going to live for another paycheck or another weekend or another vacation or a better car or a bigger house? You're going to live for some human's love? I mean, really, that's what you're going to live for. To consume more of what our culture tells you is the right thing to consume so that you can kind of be sort of entertained for a little while until you die? Or are you going to embrace the adventure? You know how every great story goes? Somebody is in comfort, somebody is in a cozy little life, and then adventure sweeps them off their feet into all sorts of peril and terror and danger. And they find something beautiful in that adventure. If you want your nice little life without Jesus, you can do that. But I would encourage you to live for something. To open your heart to what God is calling you to do and to be. Not just because it's beautiful, but because it's true. So let's pray for God's blessing. God, some of us are interacting with this message in a way that we never have before. Your Holy Spirit is working on our hearts and we ask that you would enter in, that you would give us our strength and our faith so we can trust in you and embrace the adventure. We pray that if there are any in this room or outside this room in this city who are questioning your word, that you would give them answers through their pastors, through the scriptures, through Christian friends, so they can come to the knowledge of the truth. And finally, as we as a congregation consider what it means to be a gathering on this spot on the earth, we ask that you would work through us to be a light in the darkness, to show this beautiful message and the life that it causes in us to this community. We ask all those things in your name. Amen.